Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. Excited to be back in your ear having conversations about what really matters, right? Relationships. And, you know, I'm always really impressed when I see someone who is sort of in a state of influence or quote unquote celebrity and using that influence to further conversations that are important and have them in a fun way. And this recently is something I experienced when I saw my friend Brandon Alexander, who has an Instagram account called New Age Gents. And he was talking with Giacomo Giannotti. I hope I got that right. How Italian was that? Seriously, I'm basically Italian now. Uh, And Giacomo, uh, you may know him from Grey's Anatomy. He's an incredible man. I watched this talk and I was just struck by his level of compassion and awareness about the relational space, about masculinity. And so I reached out to him and asked if he'd be open to coming on the podcast. And he said yes. So today's episode is a conversation about many things to do with relationship. And I was just really excited to get to sit down with him and jam. And so, you know, it's like we're all having coffee together, which I think is what podcasts are really like anyways. I was so excited to have him on. He is a compassionate, kind, and very uh, conscious man of, of his behavior and his, you know, I think, you know, I say this all the time that our ability to recognize our own shortcomings, our own um, space for growth and expansion is actually what is so connective in relationship is the ability to hear feedback and all those things. And Giacomo shares a lot of his learnings that he's had both growing up as uh, as a man and as a, from an immigrant family and also his experience in relationship and his marriage now. So I'm so excited for you to hear this episode Before, of course, we get started, my ask is that wherever you listen to this, please subscribe to it and leave a five-star review and a written review. That is so helpful to get it in more people's ears. If you could share it on Instagram or wherever is your place, maybe do a dance on TikTok to it. That would be awesome. All right. Hot off the press. I got to tell you, Organifi has a new blend and it is chocolatey delicious. It's called Harmony and it is made for healthy hormones. It's designed for women. So it combines superfoods and adaptogens that have been used for centuries to support inner balance and bliss. With the ladies in mind, this blend is designed so you can feel your best and experience daily harmony. It's plant-based, it's gluten-free, it's vegan, it's dairy-free, it's soy-free. It's got cacao, maca, shatavari, stinging nettle, ginger, turmeric, coconut milk, chaste tree. I mean... It sounds delicious. It is delicious. I've tasted it. It's chocolatey delicious, so you can't go wrong. And it's designed for healthy hormones to use during your menstrual cycle. So there you go. Go to Organifi.com slash Create the Love to save 20% and get free shipping. And that is special to Create the Lovers on top of the 20%. So go to Organifi.com slash Create the Love. So without further ado, here is Giacomo Giannotti. Oh my God, that's so good. Giacomo Giannotti. There you go, perfect. I feel like I'm in the mob. That feels good. You have the hat for it. Yeah, right? I enjoyed in the context of the conversation that you had with Brandon from New Age Gents, you know, about masculinity, about you know, like, does that get you fired up? This like, it does. you know, the conversation I think it's like there's some, 
I feel like there's there's been some kind of and there's a lot of these trends on Instagram and social media that it's kind of like cool to participate in these things. It's cool <laughs> to talk about this. Like it gives you cred, like social media cred to like, oh yeah, like I, you know, I'm the vul- I'm a vulnerable man too. Um, <laughs> totally. But but in reality, the thing that gets me fired up is it's it's really real for me, and it's something that I've been really working on. And like I've had a radical change in my personal. Uh, mental health in the past two years since before I got married, because I just think there was a lot of things that I had just neglected. And I think the success that I have acquired in my life in a short amount of time is due to like an insane and frankly unhealthy work ethic. And uh, which I'm grateful for, which is instilled in me from my immigrant, you know, parents who, who taught me all that stuff. Uh, which I'm grateful for. But at the end of the day, it's like, we always want to be better than the previous generation. We always want to be better than our fathers and our grandfathers were and, and kind of really take advantage of all the sacrifices they made for us to have a better life. And that's the way sort of I've always felt. And I was about to get married and I just felt like there were so many things that I hadn't really dealt with or conquered and I needed to if I was going to commit my life to somebody because I just felt like, how could I promise to love this person forever if they didn't really know who I was? And if I hadn't really done some work on, on being proud of that person. So at 30 years old, I, I started for the first time, you know, having therapy and it was like extremely, extremely late to the game, uh, extremely foreign. Um, I remember like just even like working up the confidence to like call someone and like, <laughs> yeah, it was like hang up the phone and then I'd <laughs> up the phone, be like, okay, no, just do it. And then like I'd call and they'd pick up and I'd hang up and then I'd be like, Oh, I don't know. And then I remember like getting to the actual like waiting room and sitting there alone and then literally going for the door being like, no, this is it. I can't, I can't do this. This is way too like terrifying and scary. And as I got to the door, this therapist came out and was like, are you Giacomo? And I was like, come on, shit. Come on. <laughs> trying to bounce. Um, and I was like, yes. He's like, well, are you going to come in? And I was like, I guess. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was just so weird. I, I just never had such honest, real conversations because they're not conversations you can have with people in your life because people in your life – just don't have objectivity. They, they can't, they are some way connected to you and have some mm. kind of affinity or alliance or something. So it's not, it's not really objective. And I, I, you know, now I've been going to therapy a lot and the benefits of it and making me see things that I never thought were there. And so um, that's been a huge, huge change for me. And that's sort of what's brought about, you know, seeking out people like Brandon and other people and just continuing to sort of dive into this topic that I'm really working on, on myself in terms of, you know, undoing a lot of the things from my childhood and the way I was raised and just trying to be a better uh, partner. And I think what I've learned about marriage is that <laughs> it's, it's so often, I think, uh, you know, you're talking about branding or, or marketing, so often like branded as like, you're trying to, um, like fix that person and, and try to like make them into the perfect partner for you. But really what I've learned is that marriage is about working on yourself and, and how going on a journey of 
making yourself the best partner to them and mm. in a weird roundabout way that ends up massively benefiting you and coming back to you. Um, so that's sort of the stuff that gets me fired up and the stuff that I continue to like, you know, read about and podcasts and all that kind of stuff. And um, I didn't listen to the whole thing, but I did listen to the, the podcast that you sent me. And um, Oh, on the evolution of patriarchy. Was, yeah. Masculinity. <laughs> it was like, I'm a white cisgender hetero male, uh, i.e. patriarchy, i.e. the oppressor. <laughs> Right. Yeah. The guy who hosts it. It's such a good podcast. Um, I think it's called Scene on Radio or something like that. Uh, and what we're talking about for you guys listening is a podcast that I sent to Giacomo that is on the history of sort of patriarchy and masculinity and its evolution to where we are today. It's a beautiful season. And I'm only just beginning it too. I thought you would find it interesting. And, yeah. you know, what you said about like being late to the game at 30 to therapy. And I'm like, shit, I don't think you're late to the game. I think you're like kind of earlier in the game because, you know, the fascinating thing about therapy from a couple's perspective is it's by the time a couple goes to therapy, it's actually often too late. That's because we, I mean, not just men, but unless you're in New York where you're like raised in therapy culture, you know, in Canada, I don't remember, you know, because I have so many friends in New York where like they just go to their therapist every week. And that's, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Late, late by the game, maybe it's because I have so many American friends are, you know, been, been living in the States for so long that, you know. Yeah bring it up like they've been doing it since they were like <laughs> right they came out of the womb and all of a sudden they were sitting on a couch in a therapist's office and I didn't have that either you know it wasn't until yeah. I started to look at my own relational stuff too when a relationship ended and yeah and I remember just thinking to myself like why has no one taught me this like this is the most essential skill set I'm good at talking about everything else but my feelings which really was a skill set designed so I didn't have to talk about my feelings you know it's like mastery I'll just be chivalrous and charming and then I won't have to talk about anything uh, that's related to emotion and I I think you know for people listening if you're not in therapy or coaching or anything like that it's such a beautiful thing to enter you know to yeah. enter into this objective experience I I love what you said when you go to friends, or people who are in your life, they can't be objective because in some way you, they are influenced by the choices you make or the challenges of the choices you make. So if you decide to do something they're afraid of doing, they'll likely try to talk you not into that thing Correct. so they don't have to get uncomfortable, you know? There's always something at stake, you know? Whereas, yeah. with, whereas with a therapist, it's just like they just want you to be happy. So they're just, they're being a neutral player. And oftentimes, I, you know, I get into like, funny in, in, in good humor arguments with my therapist of like, why are you telling me what to do? Yeah. All right. Why are you giving me option A and option B? Why don't you just tell me what to do? And they're like, I can't decide that for you. I'm here to be neutral. I'm here to kind of like open the doors for you, but you, you got to walk through them. You know what I mean? I can show you the value of all the options. I can show you the value of all these different paths you can take, but I, I, it's not my, my job to influence you in which path you're to take but I will be objective in how I present those paths to you so that you can really have a good grasp at what is the right, you know, decision to make in this point in your life or, or whatever you're going through. You know what I mean? And that's, that's what I appreciate, you know? Well, then you learn to trust yourself. You learn to make decisions on your own. And I, you know, I, when I think you about, know. yeah, exactly. You start to see within yourself that you can 
find through your own wisdom, through your own intuition, through your own. But it's always great, you know, when we've been through so much social conditioning, it's so good to have a reference point uh, to help us walk through all the conditioning. So it's not making choices for us. And I think as men, um, but I think this can be a human thing as men, because we're so we're so socialized to be severed from our feelings that when we're in partnership and I'm speaking heteronormatively, but it could be in any relationship. And, and let's say our, our partner who's female is asking us to hold space for them or like help them navigate a feeling. If we're severed from our own feelings, how can I hold, it would just be fake space. I'd just be holding fake space because I don't know how to do it within me. So how can I do it for you? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's such a huge, huge thing. And that's certainly something that, you know, Nicole and I have, have spent a lot of time talking about, you know, in, in therapy, both our, our separate and our, and our together therapy is like, just asking for what you need is so important because <laughs> sometimes you want somebody's opinion and you invite somebody into a thought or an idea. And sometimes you don't, sometimes you just want someone to listen. <laughs> but if you're not clear about what you're actually really wanting from that person, it's easy to get into trouble really quickly. I went into fix it mode yesterday and I got into trouble. It was like, I just need you to listen. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. I do this sometimes. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah. And it's just like, I, Hey, I'm going to like talk a lot and say something. And I just, I literally just need you to hold space and just listen. I don't want any of your fucking opinions about it. Cool. That's so much easier as guys. Then we're like, Oh man, this is awesome. I could turn off the fix it part of my brain. Wait, but I do have some thoughts. No, you're not allowed to have that. You know, like, I'm like, no, but I have a really good opinion right now. It's like, no, you're not allowed that opinion. And I'm like, Oh, this is kind of nice because you get to sort of turn off the uh, I want to say like saving part of you, the fixing part of you, which takes up a lot of real estate. My God, does it? Right? Like, I think, you know, when we consider it, I speak for myself, you know, thinking like, I think as men, like if we can, uh, I mean, ultimately what we want is to one, be needed by our partner in some sense, not in a dysfunctional way. I mean, in a healthy, yeah. like, you yeah. know, my partner, what she does, and I know what she's doing. I love it. I don't care. Is she'll like be like, hand me peanut butter to open for her or like a jar. And I'm like, I know she's a strong, powerful, independent woman. She can open the jar. But the fact that she just does that. So I have a role where I'm like, you know, you know, opening this thing. I'm the reason she has access right. to peanut butter. I love that because in the act is a sur- an act of surrender by her to say, I need you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for me, I'm like, come in on my, I don't ride horses, but I was going to say, come in on a horse and save yeah. the day. But that's, peanut butter. Anyway, that's, that's where you're at. You're like, you're like galloping in with the peanut butter. <laughs> right. I'm a knight. I would die in battle for sure. One of the first people, but in this yeah. scenario, I've got it. Yeah. No, it's true. I think, I think that's a, yeah, a really universal thing that, yeah, you want to be needed. You want to be needed, but I think that works both ways. Yeah, I think my wife wants to be needed too. My wife wants to have opportunities where she's given the wheel, she's given control and power, and she's validated for having good ideas and good thoughts and 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 being able to fully drive on her own. And you kind of stepping back from that leader, manly, I got it role. And you know that's a big thing for me of like so many times with like if we're collaborating on something or 
you know, we moved into a house six months ago, so we were like decorating it and and, and outfitting it with, with furniture and stuff like that. And I just realized that it's like, oh, she really needs this. Like, I need to, I need to really like give over, even though like you were saying before, I have thoughts, I have opinions. <laughs> this is maybe an opportunity to to sit back and let her have some real ownership for for her self esteem and for her. You know what I mean? But sometimes it's it's hard to notice that in the moment. I feel like I'm really because I read so much of this stuff and I consume so much of this, this material, it's all in here, but I can never connect it, you know, in the moment. It's always hindsight's twenty twenty, and you're like, oh, fuck, why did I act like that? Or why did I say that? I could have done this and I would have been out of it. I would, <laughs> you know, but well, I think as, oh, I think as men, uh, but people, we, you know, we often, I, th- I think of like the common complaint that men have though, that you hear, you know, in the locker room or wherever it is, is like, oh, she always wants to talk. Like she always wants to talk about blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, when I finally learned and continued to learn how to listen, we weren't having the same conversations over and over again, you know? And for you, like when in your experience, what has been maybe the most transformative part of therapy for your relationship? I think or just or just personal growth. It yeah, I think therapy. it's like you know, with couples, uh, you're never arguing about what you're arguing about, and so the journey is what are we really fighting about? Because oftentimes, mm-hmm. when you get into those patterns, it's the same thing, and you're you're frustrated, and you're banging your head against the wall, being like, how do we keep fighting about the same? incessant stupid thing like why do we keep falling in this little trap it's because we haven't really dealt with it mm-hmm. we've dealt with like the fake circumstance that we've created right <laughs> and i've apologized or you've apologized but we haven't really gotten to the root of what we were actually fighting about and really addressed it and i feel like that's that's where the real growth is you know it's like i really wanted you to like open that peanut butter jar for me but you wouldn't but that's not really the thing is like, I really wanted help. And I just felt like I, I I was really asking for help and I didn't feel like considered and I didn't feel, you know, valued in that moment, which is deeper than like the immediate thing that was happening. Yeah. And so it's like, how can you kind of analyze those things? Um, and just like really owning your shit. You know what I mean? Like owning uh. your problems. Like every person has problems, has things that they do, like really shitty characteristics and you got to work on them. You know what I mean? And like anything else, practice makes perfect. So, you know, it's just about practicing those things every day. And hopefully, I hope, I hope one day I'll be good at that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm in no way a master of any of these things that I'm talking about, but I certainly practice them. And I certainly try to hold myself to that standard. And yeah, like I have things that I know I need to work on. And so I have to be more conscious of those things. And um, and so does she. And so we always try to like meet in the middle. And then the more we talk about our past and our childhood and our traumas, the more we learn about why we're easily triggered by certain scenarios more than the average human. And like, then you really start getting deeper into like, oh, okay. Like I know during this time, like that's a bad time to talk about that thing because that reminds her of when, you know, she was younger and her mother did this to her or whatever the scenario is, you know what I mean? Yeah. It gets really deep. It's like a very deep, 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 but it's like, in a way it's, it's interesting and it's fascinating and it's super rewarding because when you can do those, those work and those deep dives on those issues, and then you get back into a moment of like a potential argument starting and then you're able to diffuse it. Mm. 
it's like, whoa, you just feel like you have like a superpower or something, you know, you're like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, you feel yourself, but it didn't because I remembered this little thing. Something simple too, you know, where you realize that you're starting to deepen intimacy because you're having conversations that you've never had. You're navigating conflict in a way where there's repair, which I, you know, same for me, you know, I, I think I was so good at talking and, and I was in sales. So I was good at, I was good at flipping shit. Right. And I was good at flipping shit around, which now they call gaslighting. (laughs) But so I would have for sure been, I would have gotten a meme sent to me. Like you just gaslit me last night. Cause I remember I had a partner who would say to me, uh, how come when I bring something to you, I always feel like it's my fault after. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't design how you feel, you know, like that's how manipulative some of my answers were. And I think now, you know, as I, uh, use the point you said about like recognizing that we all have our own stuff. And I think I was so afraid from that, you know, before we started recording, we talked about the word like male fragility from that fragile place. I was so afraid of having chinks in my armor of people knowing that I had, I was, uh, overtly sensitive that I was really emotional and, uh, you know, there was so much, so much work went into pretending like that wasn't true. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the entertainment industry and, you know, people who are famous, like actors and singers and all kinds of entertainers, people who are very successful, uh, even athletes and all that kind of stuff. You're seeing all these documentaries come out about mental health, about transparency to their, you know, emotional states. And it's just so healthy because I think, especially for young people who haven't really built their thick skin, who haven't really learned how to kind of have a lot of self-esteem and confidence. They look at these people and think that they are, they got it all figured out. Yeah. And so the more these people who are so successful, so like on paper, on Instagram, seem like they got it all figured out, come forward and say, actually, I don't have it all figured out. And I struggle daily with this, this, and this. And I've had a lot of setbacks in my life because of this. And some days I don't want to even get out of bed. Then it's like, you know, when, when you hear that, you go, oh, wow. Okay. Well, if, you know, that person can struggle with all of those things and still be that successful, it's all of that stuff that sort of the more all of these conversations are normalized, I think it's so much more healing for everybody uh, around, uh, especially for like young people who, who want, you know, older role models and and stuff like that because now I'm going to be like especially for, for young women god the role models for young women it's like oof. yeah so. I know I think about that too you know we what you're saying about the if we if the people we idolize or hold on pedestals do not show that they have flaws and hard days and those types of things then we will think that we're not normal or we want to we want to strive to get to the place where we're like this stoic man who doesn't have any feelings or yeah. And I agree with you on female role models. I had a woman on here named Laura McNally talk about body dysmorphia and the effects of social media. And like a lot of the times she said that historically when people went to a plastic surgeon to want to look like someone, they would take a picture from a magazine of a celebrity or something like that. I want this nose. And she said that now not only are they still doing that with like 
the people with the last name K that have basically, I think, been very destructive to any form of body image. Not, yeah, it's awful. It's very toxic. And, you know, the, she said that also those Facetune apps, people bring in the apps where they tune their own fucking face. And, you know, I'm so grateful that when I was young, I was present all the time in the moments I was in because I didn't have a phone. It wasn't even a choice. Like Facebook didn't come out till 2007 or something. And I was already done university, thank God. Because, you know, I think about like the pressure on your relationships, even, you know, like back in the day, if I made out on a dance floor, it didn't get put on like someone's fucking Instagram story or some shit. Which, you know, which I think in some ways holds some accountability, but also, <laughs> yeah. why can't you have a good dance floor makeout? But, you know, it's a totally different world. It is. I, I, you know, we watched this documentary the other night called The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Oh. And have, you, have you seen it? Yeah. Fucking bananas. Hey. You know, but the thing that hit me the most, of course, the data was very alarming, but there was a segment they were doing like, you know, reenactions and it was of a family. And there was the young daughter uh, in the family that they were sort of reenacting. And if you remember, there was like a scene where she was like posting a picture of herself. Yeah. And then someone commented with the elephant emoji hinting at she had big ears. And then you saw her kind of like look at her ears and like push them back and like cover, cover them with her hair. And like, you're just kind of like, oh, my God, like just they're already so fragile. They, they haven't learned like she hasn't even learned how to become a strong, independent young woman yet. She hasn't built that thick skin through experience and had failures and then gotten back up to show her that failures don't mean it's the end of the road. She hasn't had all those experiences. So she's yeah. agile. And then she, she has to deal with this like online bullying and stuff and all those apps that like, oh, me go make my face skinnier and my this, that, and this tighter and that wrinkle. And that, and it's just like, it's not that it doesn't affect men. It just affects women so much more. I, 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 it's just, and it's, I mean, it's historical. It's always, I mean, you could look at like advertisements for like Campbell's soup from like the forties and it's like, the shit's still there. It's in a different package, but it's the same shit. Oh, yeah. those ads from the 40s are fucking awful. So, what? They were so patriarchal too. You know, like you just saw the role of the man and the woman being defined by marketing, uh, which continue, you know, I, it still is in, I, it's still sort of like a, a place of disbelief to me that we don't recognize the amount of influence that TV has on us, that marketing has on us, that social media has on us. And not even realizing like, this is what feeds the animal of like, I'm going to, and you were saying about this young woman who hasn't developed this ability to recognize that her self-worth comes from within, not from outside of someone's opinion. And that whole thought about her ears can follow her her whole life. She could see oh surgery God. because of it and she yeah. could have normal ears, you know, it's of course. But what's normal. Like what's exactly. normal. Like even that concept is like, it's just, it's, it's bananas. It's absolutely bananas. Like I think a year ago I saw an ad on TV and it was like a, like a laundry ad, like laundry detergent. And it was like a dad who was like balancing the kids and like putting the stuff in the laundry. And I was like, wow. What are we? Okay, 2019. It took for an ad, a laundry ad, to have a man doing the laundry in the house. Like, and they're only appealing to that demographic because they know it gets some form of celebration. But there is also a market for them now, and and that's it, right? It's driven by the dollar. They want to have that edge of being woke. 
you know? Yeah. All that. It, which, don't get me wrong, it's like all forms of quote-unquote woke can be progressive. Uh, and even if they're contrived, they can be progressive. Even if they're not fully authentic, they can be progressive in terms of... They're their, still doing good, you know, at the end exactly. of the day. They're still doing good. Like the motive and the sort of reasoning behind it might be a little bit not so honest or authentic, like you said. But at the end of the day, it's like you're still projecting this image, which is super amazing, which is that like yeah, dad has to fucking do laundry sometimes. It's not always a woman in the kitchen cleaning and doing all that stuff and normalizing that kind of stuff so that dads and men growing up can can feel like, oh, yeah, that's something that like I need to be doing, too. And like, that's normal. <laughs> well, and they're, I would imagine they're not playing in on all regions of the countries, you know, which is fascinating to think of like they're. You know, even the concept that we think our radio, our television, and our social media channels are telling us the truth, and they always have. And I, you know, at least like this idea of facts and all that kind of shit has become not the facts are shit, but you know what I mean, the big dialogue, which is who checks the fact checkers even? Like, what is the actual right common narrative? And like, just because it doesn't align with what a government says doesn't make it wrong. Because I think historically, we've always seen the governments don't always tell us the truth. And I think we're in this really interesting time that social media has both provided and participated in, which is, I was reading an article from Mark Manson recently where he said, before we used to argue about things where we were consuming the same information. So we'd argue about, I'm Republican, you're Democrat, but we were consuming the exact same media. Right, right. But now we're consuming so much media that's actually just geared towards our own thought and so our own belief. Yeah. It's so right. And polarized. It's so black and white that, you know what I mean? Yeah. The article perfectly supports your narrative and my article perfectly supports my narrative. You know what I mean? And then we come at each other and it's just like, there's no way we could either think that there was any room for, you know, agreement or, or, or like a real intelligent, you know, debate. It's just like, nope, I got all the facts from my news source and I know I'm right and you have your things. And yeah, but I think that's why, you know, newspapers and like, especially ones that are, you know, have really good uh, credibility and have held that credibility for a long time have never been more important. And we're, you know, leaning on them more than ever, because now with, like you said, such saturated media sources, everybody's got a website, everybody's a blogger, everybody's a journalist. You know what I mean? That going back to those like New York Times and those very kind of institutionalized places, it's like we have to depend on those because it's really easy to just go on Twitter. And if you want your narrative to be supported, to find an article that supports your narrative. Mm-hmm. And Twitter will just send it to you. You don't even have to do anything. Exactly. You know what I mean? And, and the social dilemma, you know, that documentary was talking about how, you know, it was like fake news spreads six times as fast as real news. Like that yeah. was crazy. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I was like, that's wild. But I also was curious, how do you define fake news? Like, is it something that doesn't, like, obviously, if it's a made up story, that's pretty easy to define. But if it's just in contradiction to like something they don't like, like research on face masks or something like that, you know, where it's actual research, but it just is in contradiction to what the government saying, and they're to censor that. So that kind of scares me to really know what to believe for sure. Right. Well, and then you're like left in this space where you, we each have to consume 
if we have time to even do that, information to make a decision. Uh, and in some way, it's I think we're having a harder time trusting experts too, because you know that's it, there's so much divisive information, which is the same challenge. You know, the same challenge that we have of like you believe that and I believe this. I have my story, you have yours. Is actually the same challenge that relationships show, which is you have your story and your experience and I have mine. And we have to find a way to unify, to to bring these two things together, which doesn't mean both truths can't exist anymore, which I think that's the really interesting thing is like, if I let what you're saying be true, then it nullifies what I'm saying, which is not true at all. No, and, and to bring it back to relationships, I think sometimes, you know, something that I definitely continue to learn, but it's a big one is that it's more it's more important to be happy than it is to be right. And that's, you know, a huge one for me, um, speaking about relationships. But like you said, if I admit or concede or apologize, that does not mean that it nullifies my opinion. I still have the right to that opinion. I can still believe right. that. I don't need that other person to validate or tell me that I'm right. If this person, you know, needs to be validated or apologized to or conceded to, okay, fine, no worries. You know what I mean? I don't need to get you on my side. I can, I can push that. I, you know what I mean? But in the beginning, when I was less informed and less therapy and all that, I was like, no, I need you to like, agree with me. I need you to tell me that I'm right. You know what I mean? I need you to see the world through my eyes. Yeah. You're like, but I can't. That's impossible. Yeah. Relationships offer. There's a, a David Data talks a lot about like masculine and feminine energy. And I remember there's a line from one of his talks where he says that the first stage of relationship is I need you. Like I need you, but in like an unhealthy codependent way. And he said the next stage of relationship is I don't need you. I don't need anybody. And again, like more walled up, unhealthy. And he said the third stage of relationship, which you spoke to earlier, he mentions is through you, I become a better human. Through you, I find God. Through you, I find my highest self. Through you. And I, I think about that transition, like as a young man, even in my 20s, uh, it wasn't until the late 20s that I started to think about things differently. I never thought that way. I wasn't thinking like, oh, this feedback you're offering me, that can make me better. It was too, I, I didn't want to hear it. I was too defensive. I was too oh, shut down. Absolutely. Are you a recovering defender as well? Yes, definitely. definitely. Um, yeah. Man, it's, this is a support group then. <laughs> Hi, I'm Giacomo. Hi, Giacomo. <laughs> yeah, it's it, to, to sort of admit that you could be wrong or not be, well-informed about that subject. So like, what? Of course I know Ugh. everything. Yeah, that requires um, a, a, a good sense of self-worth, you yeah. know, to be able to do that, to actually admit you're wrong, admit something's happening for you, admit that you don't know, admit that you did that wrong. I was listening to a talk that Harriet Lerner just recently did on Brene Brown's podcast, and it was called Why You Won't Apologize. And she said, people who never apologize, it's because they can't stand on a solid foundation of worth. It takes a solid foundation of worth to be able to say, I'm sorry, and separate your apology from who you are and your worth. And I was like, wow, I never even thought about it in that context. Yeah, no, that's something I've struggled with a ton, you know, a ton, the sort of not being able to apologize. Because I still am like, but I'm right. 
<laughs> that's the that Brene Brown was funny on it because she's like, I don't agree with, I can't get on board with. <laughs> so it's good because she's like, I'm bad at apologizing. Same for me. Like there are times when I apologize and it's the call out is like that wasn't sincere, and I'm like that is true, <laughs> you know. Sometimes, yeah, you'll get in that position where you're like, okay, I'm sorry. And it's just like, well, that's not what they want. <laughs> <laughs> right. In a way, you know, not sincere apology. It's not the words. It's like, I really want to feel that you are sorry. I really want to feel that. You know what I mean? Just like the word I love you. It doesn't mean anything. We've given it meaning. But to make someone feel loved, that's what we're after. We don't need someone telling us, oh, I love you. It doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? It's like... I saw you were having a bad day. So I cooked you dinner and I brought it to you in bed or whatever. Like that's love. That's like, I time out of my life to care for you and was sensitive and noticed your needs. And like, that's, you know, that's literally, I love you materialized. You know what I mean? Those acts of kindness. We speak a lot, like Nicole and I speak a lot about uh, love languages, which when we met, she kind of introduced me. Uh, to to the subject, and I don't remember them all. Ones like acts of kindness or like affection. Like, um, acts of service, gifts, quality time, physical touch, and words of affirmation. There you go. So we kind of defined each other's, and then it was like, oh, it's amazing because we. I think I certainly uh, growing up and a lot of my earlier relationships was all like, Oh, I just, I just love, I'm supposed to love women the way I love to be loved. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, everybody right. loves love the way I am love. And it's not at all. And you learn it pretty quickly, you know, you know, past people being like, no, I'm not happy or I don't feel it. And like in your head, you're like, what? Like I'm giving you all this love. <laughs> I'm doing all these things for you. Yeah. <laughs> like you were saying like, Oh, I, I, you know, I used to be so good at be like charming and, and, um, chivalrous and all those things like that was me like it's like someone like oh my god I'm so charming I'm so chivalrous I'm so like you know what I mean let me open the door let me like you know open the car door and pull your chair and all these things and flowers and that but it's like if the woman does not speak that love language that's not what makes her feel loved and validated then you're not doing anything and um but I think a lot of relationships fall fall down because there's not that communication early on uh that transparency about those things so I think that's a huge thing. It's so simple, but it's it's so huge to identify those things. It and it, you feel witnessed in the acknowledgement of your love language and uh, being able to love them in the way they want to be. And I think for anyone listening, if you haven't done the test, it's free. If you Google five love languages, you'll find it um, from Gary. I think it's Gary Chapman, and it's such a simple way of recognizing. You know, I agree <laughs> what you're saying about like the partner doesn't feel loved, and it's you're mentioning earlier like the words if they are not attached to the verb to the actual experience of it they're void which is like saying i'm sorry just to end an argument or to because it's what you're supposed to say if it's not sincere which is both acts need to be sincere and i think that's the you know relationship in a way can become and it's easy to become robotic because we've observed generations where you know, we think about what we inherit relationally. And you said that you come from Italy originally. And you think of like how that influenced you. And, and you know, I, I would imagine that there, at least in romantic movies and everything, Italy is like all of it, you know. Yeah, for sure. And I grew up with an uh, immigrant mother too. And both my parents were grew up very poor. 
And so I think about all the things they've been through that have shaped the way they relate. And we're really the first generations to even have the food and safety and all those things, technology or whatever it is, light, like lights in your house, you know, that allow us to actually ask questions like, how do I relate? Why do I relate that way? I mean, we didn't get married for love till like the 19th and 20th century. So we don't have many generations who figured it out. Previously, we have we have generations that taught us how to exist together. Yeah, generations of roommates, basically. Right, which I think there's been a lot of romanticizing when we look at a meme with a couple that's been married 75 years and it's like, how did you do it? Well, we got married when we took commitment seriously. And I'm like, yeah, you took a sentence seriously. That's what happened because you weren't even allowed to get divorced unless you got the approval of a province or a state, which and that's crazy. With the shame in your neighborhood of like all your neighbors and people like, you know, giving you that side eye, like, oh, that's the woman that was divorced. Yeah, her husband yeah. or all that kind of. Sh- Whereas now it's just like, he was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm divorced. And it's just like, oh, it's just very like, oh, yeah, normal. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like in common. So I never knew them together. And your so, parents divorced yeah, when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah. So I never knew them together. And so I, you know, growing up, I remember like there was a time in my childhood where, you know, I'd see other kids and their their parents were together and like they'd go home and spend time on the weekends. And I sort of romanticized about about that. But as you get older and you learn more about relationships, how they work, then it's like, I, I was like, oh my God, no, definitely. You guys should not be together. <laughs> I know why you, why you guys separated. You know what I mean? That would be super toxic and unhealthy. <laughs> Um, but when you're, you're like, I want mommy and daddy to be together, you know, it's like, um, but it takes growing up to, to, to learn that, that it wasn't a, a, a failure on their part or that, you know, it was just like, they, they realized what they realized and they had to go separate ways. There's no shame in that. No, it can be an act of love, you know, and that's Absolutely. the way that we shame divorce, especially for parents. It really is so it's so toxic in some ways because we say like, okay, now of course the ideal is married parents together who love each other. Sure. Next is not married parents together who love each other. And then you might as well put married and hate each other and divorced and hate each other together in the same group because they have the same level of toxicity and influence on their children. And so, you know, I think that's the, that's the one I think that's a common narrative that people have a really hard time with, especially leaving toxic relationships Mm -hmm. because they don't want to hurt their kids, not realizing that staying actually sometimes hurts their children. Yeah. It's a short term. It's like ripping the bandaid off, you know, it stings at first, but then it's like, ultimately it allows you to heal. You know what I mean? And uh, the sting of your parents separating when you're maybe in a team can, can hurt, but then realizing how happy both of your parents then become, and that you have, even though separate, two really healthy, happy, loving parents, that's that's a win because if you, you could have had them together, but then miserable and then like not also being great parents to you because they're dealing with so much personal shit on their own that they can't even be available and hold space for you as a parent. Then like, where's the win there? You know what I mean? Just having them under the same roof. But these are things that you can only understand as an adult, as, an adult, as a kid. You just, you can't wrap your head around these. They're just too wide concepts especially um, if you don't have a therapist or someone to help yeah. or or even a family member who's help 
able to walk you through that in a way where I think we hide the truths from our kids so much, even though they can observe truths without hearing them. Kids are so perceptive. It's, it's insane. I got friends who are toddlers and they're just like the things they pick up and conversations. You're just like, Oh my God. Isn't that we're giving you credit for. How uh, old were you when your parents divorced? I was like two or three. Oh, so you were really young. Yeah. Yeah. And when did you move from Italy to Canada? I was about six years old. Do you remember that transition at all? I don't, to be honest. I don't remember. I remember like actually landing and being there. Um, my mother's Canadian. So when they separated, my mom was like, I want to raise him in Canada. And so she went to Toronto and uh, actually to Perry Sound, three hours north of Toronto. So like Muskoka area. I'm sure. Yeah. I don't know if you've been there, but. And my father, um, he didn't have a father. His father walked out when he was a kid. And so he was like, I'm not going to, like, my son's not going to not have a dad because I didn't have one. And that sucked. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to repeat this uh, generational mistake. And so he left everything he had uh, in Italy, wow. came to Canada. Uh, he couldn't even speak the language, uh, but he wow. he figured it out, you know? So um but again, like these are all things that when you're young, you can't understand either. You're just like, oh yeah, of course like, we're moving here. So like dad, dad comes too, of course, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, right. you know what I mean? Of the fact that he's not with your mother anymore. And so he's, he's, he's sort of like left everything for you. And yeah. I mean, and you hear all the time, like, you know, even in movies and stuff like, you know, we stayed together for the kids, right. This concept of like, oh, like we just got to stay together for the kids. Got to wait till they go to college and then we'll, yeah. right? you know, it's just like, then I'll really resent them. <laughs> yeah it's like who who's profiting from that i don't know it's like that's a good question i think the only thing that profits from that is the uh holding up of a continued fallacy of the uh the union of marriage like but the 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 fake side of marriage the marriage that is is about being disconnected and together and that being normalized. And I think that's really ultimately probably held together by Catholic and Christian and religious values that shame choices of leaving, which isn't true of all aspects of those churches, but a large amount. Yeah, definitely. Like you were raised Catholic, so you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. I was consider myself a recovering Catholic, you know, I'm like still always undoing. I don't have a mission out on the church anymore. I used to sort of have a mission to be like, this church, not good, causes more pain than it does good. But that's not true. I was just very, there are good aspects of all forms of religion. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm an atheist, but I have friends that, that you know, believe in God, good friends of mine. And that doesn't yeah. change the way I think about them, you know? Well, the origin story itself is very patriarchal, and they cover that in the podcast, uh, how patriarchal it is. But it's like, he made man first, so he's superior. And there was another wave that came where a woman was made second, so she was actually the the like best creation, which I I agree. And, you know, it's a interesting you thing. Know, you mentioned, I think, earlier something about the rib, right? And yeah, like, so man. That was kind of like... Like for the woman to be, she needed a piece from a man, like which he sacrificed for her, even though we don't have one less rib. I mean, the whole story is really quite hilarious in that we've just bought this, you know, and and if you think about the marketers back in the day, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there was a really cool guy who was doing beautiful work, a prophet, 
named Jesus. But he wasn't like, I'm a Catholic. He was just a guy making changes and doing cool stuff, you know, loving people, teaching. He was a teacher. And, you know, you think about the... Yeah, like, what all, if I embellish this dude? Really kind <laughs> all the marketers got together and they're like, let's write this on the tablets, yeah. you know? And I'll make them white, even though no one here is white. <laughs> right. Like, it's just, <laughs> you see, I remember during... um uh, a conversation with a friend of mine who during black lives matter, a friend of mine is black. And he said like the history was not written by the people who were enslaved. Um, I remember him saying that and I'm like, yes, that's so fucking true. Like, but the fact that we don't tend to question who wrote the thing or where it comes from or what, who benefits from whatever it is. And I think that's such a, that's a common conversation that's occurring now. And I'm grateful for it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like you, like, I'm not trying to like burn the church and all that. Like I'm just, but you know, if someone asks me, I'm going to give them an honest answer. Well, I think it's important that we question the things I never questioned why I believed what I believed. And it wasn't until, you know, you, you start to realize that some of the things you were taught aren't true. And when you realize some of the things you're taught aren't true, you and recognize you getting all the other things and going down the line. Right. Go, oh, wow. Or you shut off because you're too, that's too much dissonance. So you double down on the things you were taught to believe. I remember like one of my heroes to this day, rest in peace, um, George Carlin. And I remember discovering yeah. him in high school on YouTube and just being blown away by all his concepts. And of course, how sort of like intelligently he was sneaking it all into comedy. And like, while your mouth was open laughing, he was hitting you with this truth and hitting you with these little very political, very intelligent, amazing little facts and, and opinions that just were amazing. But because he had you laughing, he accessed your soul so much faster. And uh, yeah, that was sort of like my journey, the beginning of my journey of undoing all that sort of like recovering Catholic. Abuse. <laughs> uh, but comedians do such a beautiful job of that, of, of, of taking things that are silly about what's true. I've been watching some of JP Sears's videos recently. I don't know if you know him. Okay. Yeah. He's this does a lot of satirical comedy and he's doing, he just did a video on the COVID hotline. He points out all the inconsistencies and all the things we're taught that we all are like, well, that doesn't make sense. And he just plays on the confusion, like makes a joke about it, which I find that's like uh, you know, cancel culture is being sort of, picked on by comedians now, which is great because this is how things come to the forefront. And comedians seem to get sort of like a pass to be politically incorrect or a pass to um, they should. challenge. Somebody should. And it's like, I'm cool with them having it. You know what I mean? Like, I think Dave Chappelle said something about like the line, right? Like that line He's like, from when I started as a comedian to now, the line of like, you don't cross that line. It's always moving. Yeah always moving but our job is to kind of dance just beyond it that's our that's our literally our responsibility as comedians but the problem is that culture is moving it all the time that we sometimes don't know where it is and we lose track of that line and so are we going to occasionally misstep and cross it yes but it's not our intention to offend you we're trying to hold up our responsibility which is to ride that line you know what I mean? Of to make you question things and to make you think things. You know what I mean? But sometimes 
a comedian is maybe a little bit ahead of the time. And so they, they, they offend people. But then when you, if then, you know, 10 years go by and you look back on that now, he, he seems like he wasn't even like anywhere close to, to where you're thinking now, you know what I mean? So it's, it's not so much that a joke or something could be offensive. It's that it's just the world's not ready for it yet. You know what I mean? We haven't, undone the things that make us offended about those things now there are things that are genuinely offensive i think in any kind of scenario for sure but i think that what you were saying that cancel culture is getting a little bit out of hand sometimes it needs a little a little reeling it's reeled in and canceled yeah, a little bit. Yeah, just parts are. of it just parts of it yeah where it cancels the humanity of someone that just made a mistake because of course I've I've said previously like yes we should hold people accountable who have never been held accountable absolutely yeah. and we should also offer people grace to change like you know in the if they're like, willing to it's like if they want if they've demonstrated it yeah you know it's a uh, as someone who like throughout you know as your career has continued to grow and your social influence has continued to grow how does that like the thoughts of all that and what you want to talk about how does that influence you? It's tough. It, it is tough because you you want to be this authentic, transparent person, but then you fear, you know, the backlash. You feel like, oh, I want to go on my Instagram and do a live and just be really honest about some things. But then you worry about, oh, how it's going to be perceived. And like, you're never going to make any everybody happy at all. Like, it's just impossible. It's good healing for codependency, right? I, th I think about that for myself as like, oh, not everyone's going to like me. Fuck, what am I going to do? Like as someone who never, that's like my nightmare. I'm living it, which is good. You know, it's, I, I know it's right. evidence. You have a platform where you talk about these things and you share your opinions and you're going to have haters. You're going to have people be like, Mark, I hate what you said about that thing. That's so stupid and wild. Like, why, why would you, like, I was such a big fan of yours. Why would you say that? You know what I mean? And you're just like, I can't make everybody happy. No, it's hard and to do. People being like, amazing. I love that. Wow. I tried that with my partner and went really well. And you're like, okay. So then it's just like, I can't be pandering to, to the, the, the haters or the people that, you know, it's definitely okay to ingest that if you can ingest it in a healthy way and you're not too like hurting your ego and, and it's, it's not doing too much damage to you. Cause people always ask me like, Oh, do you read articles about you or do you read like, you know, hate things about you? And I'm like, I don't look for them, but sometimes I can stum stumble upon a negative comment or a negative tweet or whatever, but I have enough self-worth that I don't go, Oh God, like that person hates me. Like that one person in the whole, like, <laughs> all right. Like, <laughs> just that was one. All it quits now. You know what I mean? That was one part about the social dilemma that I was really uh, aligned that really struck me. There were many, but one was we weren't designed to hear the opinions of 10,000 people about us. And I thought, wow, that's so true. Like we were not designed, we were designed to have a social network. And there's some research to show, I forget what the, I forget what the name is, but it's a number that we can really only hold, I believe it's 150 intimate relationships. Um, and so we're in this like a experience where we get, I mean, you get have, I don't know, a couple million followers, don't you? So it's like, you potentially have a couple million opinions every time you do something. That's fucking crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like in the, and I'm sure, you know, it will just continue to grow. And so as your career continues I, I to grow. Way by people who can actually like go through it all and like respond to nearly everyone and comment. Oh. On I, I'm like, I, 
I mean, I got, you know, better things to do, to be honest. It's like, I try, but like, do I try to like, oh, I'll do like five minutes. So like for five minutes, I'm going to scroll down and try to write people back and like and comment and do that stuff. But like, I'm not going to go through, I, I can't like, it's like, no, you don't have the time. I don't have the time to do that. You know what I mean? It's, but it doesn't mean that I don't like love what everyone like said. And like, I appreciate it. You know what I mean? I always wondered from you were saying like when the negative news or negative media, I mean, how do you insulate yourself from it? How do you, I mean, I don't even know of any negative media from you, but I was wondering, do you like, do you like, uh, like do those magazines write about you? Like, do you get chased by like in touch and people and all those types of things? I luckily have been able to avoid any like scandals or, or anything like that. That's good. Uh, thank God they haven't found out. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I think like when I started as an actor, like I was doing a lot of theater. And when you're in theater, you get reviewed. You know, it doesn't matter what, no matter the theater was small or big, you get reviewed. And when the reviews come out, you know, it's definitely a tense moment because it means a lot. It holds a lot of weight. You know, people are going to like either see this play or not because the reviewer went to the previews and said, Giacomo was shit. And <laughs> I go see that play because he's like watching paint dry or he was really riveting and you should absolutely check out this play. And so even though it's just one person's opinion, it's hard to not be affected by that, especially when you're like young actor, like starting out. But now I've been doing it so long that I just feel a general confidence in what I do. And I don't claim to be the best or, or amazing at what I do, but I've done it for a long time that I feel confident about my skills. And if somebody doesn't like what I do, then they don't like what I do. You know what I mean? It's like, I think also as an actor, you build really thick skin because you're just told no so often. Um, you know, the jobs that you get are so much less than the jobs you try out for. So, <laughs> so many doors constantly just slammed in your face that, you know, you just learn to be like, cool, whatever, next thing. You know what I mean? Like, that your self-worth isn't based on, you know, whether you got that job or not, you know, that's like, okay, clearly there was a better guy for the job. Like, great. Happy for him. You know what I mean? It wasn't for me. Just At like what point? Job, it was like, I was the best guy for that job. At what point did it transition for you? Like where you were, uh, where you found a uh, momentum of success? Uh, I graduated theater school and then I did a year in film school. Um, Norman Jewison has a film school, uh, in, in Canada and Toronto. And I went there for a year after, so it was like four years I was studying and, uh, and pretty much right after I just, I was doing theater, you know what I mean? And I was thinking that that was my trajectory that I was just going to be on stages and maybe I'd move to New York and like try and do some Broadway. But then my agent was just really pushing me to do TV and film work. And I really wasn't interested in it, but I was like, okay, like, I don't really know anything about that. Like I just. I, I do plays like, but then I started doing these auditions and I started booking them and then I just started booking them and booking them and booking them. And then I look back now, it's been like 10 years I've been doing TV and film and I haven't even done a play. And it's like crazy. Are you going to go back to theater? Would, do you think? Oh my God. I would love to. I feel like successful actors tend to do a return to Broadway. Yeah. No. I, yeah, I, I pray for it. I can't wait. I can't wait till I um, have a little bit more of a free schedule and maybe COVID and everything um, goes away and we all feel comfortable sitting in a theater with like hundreds of people and watching. Oh my gosh. I can't wait for those days to come back because they will. 
you know, this idea of like the new normal. I'm like, no, I'm rejecting that bullshit. Like this is, it will get back. It will get back. And I can't wait. I really look forward to it. Right. Right now, where can people find you in terms of like uh, shows? I know you're on Grey's. Yeah. Grey's Anatomy. That's, uh, that's been my solid gig for about six years now. Yeah. I'm going to have a movie that I uh, produced uh, and starred in called Acquainted. Uh, finally uh, get into U.S. It's available in Canada right now. Uh, it's called Acquainted on Apple. You can buy it on, on Apple, but uh, we're hoping to secure an American um, distributor for, for December so people in the U.S. can, can finally see it. So, uh, so that's exciting. That's awesome. Well, you know what? Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. And, you know, as I said to you before we started, like I really appreciated w- watching the conversation you had uh, on masculinity and and that you care about those things that like with your influence with what you're doing that you're having those conversations like using the power that you have to bring these conversations to the to the forefront to the common to the main co- narrative you know so well, they interest me you know and I like to think that if it interests me it interests at least a, a couple other people you know and you've clearly gained a, a good following by doing this so clearly it's not just a couple people that are interested in talking and hearing about this subject. Well, and I acknowledge you for what you were saying earlier, like when people put someone on a pedestal and you don't get to see the real them, you then uh, don't, you're sort of taught to not be the real you. And so by being here today and sharing and and being vulnerable and just being open, uh, you're, you're demonstrating that to people who uh, look up to you. So I appreciate that. And I acknowledge you for that. Thank you, man. Appreciate that. So um, where do people find you? I'm sure they can Google you and find all the things, but Giacomo Gianotti. It's a sort of a challenge. It's sort of like the game is if you can figure out how to spell my name, that's my Instagram. <laughs> Giacomo Gianotti. Gianotti. Yeah, Giacomo or Gianotti. That's I feel like it's the most Italian name I've ever tried to say. Yeah, I feel like it's faster just to Google um, Grey's Anatomy, and then you'll find me there. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I'll definitely be I'm so grateful that you're on here I will put all the links in the show notes too and uh, thanks a lot man for your time 